The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 7th. Today, the new reality for asylum seekers. A smartwatch health app that doesn't quite deliver. And the real sound of dinosaurs. In most courtrooms in America, case files are public record. Anyone who's interested can pull these records and find out more about what happened. But in immigration court, it's a very different story. Often we never find out what happens to people after they get deported. And the judges who decide their fates often never find out either. They don't know if they stay in the United States and their deportation order is never carried out, or they don't know what happens as a result of this decision. All they know is what happens in the moment in the courtroom. Maria Sacchetti covers immigration for The Post, and she's been doing a lot of reporting on the U.S. asylum system. There were 120,000 asylum cases filed last year alone. And today, she has a story of one man that tells us a lot about how this very opaque court system actually works. So let's start at the beginning. Tell me about Santos Chirino. So Santos came from a a border town in Honduras. And when he was young, maybe in his early 20s, he had two children. He had a little boy he used to carry around in his shoulders and who just adored him and, and a baby girl. And he realized pretty early that he wasn't going to be able to provide for them if he didn't leave for the United States. So he left. And then his wife soon followed. And the idea was, like so many immigrants, that they would make money and go home and and live their lives. But it didn't work out that way. Where did he move to here in the States? He came to the United States. He ended up in Virginia. And he worked in the construction industry. And so did um, his brothers. And so his wife becomes very sick. She has a kidney disease that could kill her even now. Um, She's on dialysis several times a week. But he gets here and he does find work. Uh, He joins a soccer team. Um, He likes to go to, you know, out with his brothers, you know, have a few drinks, watch a game. Um, But um, at one of those games, he was attacked by MS-13 gang members. They stabbed him in the back with a screwdriver. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And um, and he was taken to the hospital. He had to be airlifted to the hospital. Wow. And he recovered, and he agreed to testify against them in state court. He really put his hopes in the American system that they would protect him. And, and they did. I mean, they prosecuted these folks, and at least one was deported. So then what happens to his immigration status after that? What ended up happening is he just stayed undocumented, and um, and then he got into trouble, and that's what got him into the immigration system. He and his brothers were in a bar fight about a year after Santos brought his teenagers to America, and uh, and Santos said that some gang members were taking pictures of him, and so his brothers objected. They complained to security, and 
a fight ensued. You know, Santos's story was that he was hit in the back of the head. He said medical reports supported that, but he ended up pleading guilty to uh, his role in the bar fight and ended up in immigration detention. Wow. So then what happens? Then he applies for asylum. So you have to have a defense from deportation. And his defense was, if you send me back, I could be killed. What argument did Santos make when he was trying to prove this? So he said that he had been targeted, that people had threatened him, that even in Farmville Detention Center, someone had said, you know, we're going to finish the job. Um, His relatives and friends provided affidavits saying death is waiting for him in Honduras. And he testified. He told the judge his story and he showed the judge his scars. I mean, he lifted up his shirt. One of the striking things in this system is that um, his asylum hearing was held by television. By, was held by television? Yes. So the judge is in the courtroom in Virginia, and Santos was on a big screen TV in his courtroom. And that's increasingly happening. Uh, it happened a lot under Obama, and the Trump administration is trying to expand it. And so the judge turns on the television, and Santos was there. And so he showed him his scars um, from the television screen. And what did the judge say? To qualify for asylum, you have to prove that there's a 10% chance you'll be killed. But Santos did not have that option for asylum because he applied too late. And so he had this other option for withholding of removal. And that's much harder to get. You have to prove there's a 51% chance that you'll be killed. And you have to provide evidence of that. And so he had testified. He had shown the scars. But at the end of the day, the judge said, you just... You know, you just hadn't proven that MS-13 was looking for you, that, that they would know how to find you. And so he said he sympathized with him and he believed that he was afraid, but he couldn't give him that protection. And so he was deported back to Honduras. And then what happened? So he went into hiding. He stayed with his parents and um, he did some some work around the, the house. He apparently would go out rarely. Um, but on his birthday, he decided, I'm going to go watch a soccer game. He loved soccer. And so he and his brother went to a nearby town and, and went to a soccer game. And the relative said that when they arrived, gang members approached them and patted them down and figured that, you know, saw that they had no weapons and left them alone for a minute, and they thought they were going to be okay. And um, and then they heard, you know, popping and screams, and and Santos's brother had been smashed in the head with a rock, and he was shot, left on the ground. And uh, I guess Santos, it's not clear what happened, but he managed to run to his car, and uh, they found him there. He had been shot multiple times in the throat, and uh, he bled to death. Oh my God. Do you know if the judge who decided his case ever heard about what happened to him? So Santos's daughter called the lawyer screaming. Her dad was dead. These two kids, you know, they arrived when they were teenagers. Such an interesting life. Um, they were raised by their grandparents, didn't know their parents very well, then are kind of ripped out of that situation and placed in Virginia in a place where they don't speak English. Um, and they're with these parents they don't know. And and their mom's dying. Mom's sick, really sick. And so and now their dad's dead. 
And now this daughter is having to defend her own asylum claim. And she's having to gather, like, the death records and all of this because the lawyer is telling the daughter, I'm so sorry for your dad's death, but you have to get these records because this proves your case. Oh, wow. So this is a moment where these kids are grieving, but this is also, I mean, in some ways, like, a really important moment for them to be able to definitively say, we can't be deported because something like this could happen to us too. It's critical. So a few months after their dad and uncle were murdered, I went to the Arlington Immigration Court with the two teenagers and their lawyer. Uh, the recognized immigration court sitting at Arlington, Virginia. Uh, it was basically for an arraignment, for an initial hearing to set a date for their actual asylum hearing. And uh, they, it was really early in the morning. They were sleepy like teenagers are, and um, they showed up. All right, I'll stop the questions. De acuerdo. Voy a parar con las preguntas. Too early for questions. Es muy temprano para hacer preguntas. And it was the it's same so courthouse that had judged their father. I'm not sure they fully grasped that. And it's just to schedule a date. But the lawyer kind of dropped this bomb in the courtroom saying, you know, their, their, their father and their uncle had just been murdered and that their father had lost his asylum case in that very courthouse. This is a, a difficult case. I represented their father, Santos Torino Cruz, uh, mm-hmm. about a year and a half ago. Um, he was stabbed by MS-13 gang members here in the United States, testified against him. They said they were going to finish the job once he went back. I lost the case in this courtroom. I uh, took on the kids' pro bono case because I you know, felt sorry for the family. Um, he was murdered in April. And the judge just—he—he he looked shocked, and and uh, and they started talking a bit more about you know about the case. And then the judge said, well, "Wait, wait, go back." Um, but go back. You said about your the their father's case. Did I understand? I heard. No, Your Honor. In this court, not not, not Your Honor. Okay. Well, good because, yeah. All right. My blood pressure can go down now. Um, Yeah, I mean, okay. It's such an extreme decision for a human being to have to make. You know, when you think about death penalty cases in court, you know, the kind of coverage that gets, the kind of years of appeals that comes with. And and this just doesn't happen in the immigration system. So you've reported that asylum cases have increased pretty dramatically, right? Like a decade ago, one in a hundred border crossings were people seeking asylum. But now one in three people crossing the border are seeking asylum. Why is that happening? And how is this current administration responding to that? So it's hard to know exactly why it's happening. So some some will say it's a smuggling strategy, that it's um, it's a way of getting into the United States. People know that asylum cases are more complicated, that that you can stay longer and you can possibly win release in the United States. And then many people never show up for their uh, final hearings. So you basically, it's a way of, be, you know, smuggling yourself in to, to the country. But others would say people are getting more information. They're more aware of their rights. They have asylum cases and there are legitimate cases. And it's important not to paint everybody with the same brush because the consequences are so dire. Santos Chirino's children are now 19 and 21. His daughter is trying to finish high school, and they're still waiting for an asylum hearing while they work and take care of their mom. 
Wearable technology is becoming more popular, and tech companies are making big promises about the applications, especially when it comes to your health. They're peddling apps that can automatically keep tabs on your glucose or insulin levels or can monitor your heart rate at all points during the day. And no company has made bigger promises on this than Apple. In addition to an optical heart sensor, there is a new Apple-designed electrical heart sensor that allows you to take an electrocardiogram, or ECG, to share with your doctor. A momentous achievement for a wearable device. But the reality of what that technology is actually capable of, that's a lot more complicated. Apple Watch can now screen your heart rhythm in the background and it sends you a notification if it detects an irregular rhythm that appears to be atrial fibrillation. In September, they came out with this big glitzy, you know, it's the Apple thing where, uh, you know, Tim Cook and uh, the COO, Jeff Williams, are, you know, on stage. Chris Rowland writes about the business of healthcare for The Post. Talking about how gorgeous the watch is and all that stuff. Talking about how it's the guardian of your health. Now, it won't catch every instance of AFib, but we believe this is going to help a lot of people who didn't otherwise know they had an issue. And then yesterday when they released the apps, Thursday, um, and these apps are now available for people to download, it comes with all these caveats. Like, like what does it say? Well, if you have AFib, for example, you can't use the watch. So that's like... Wait, what? Right. So so it turns out the watch... Isn't it advertised as for people with atrial fibrillation? No, it's advertised to detect atrial fibrillation, but... When you get down in the in the fine print, it's really just for healthy people to 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 guard against the idea that they might get it. Or <laughs> so if you're healthy and you want to know if you're ever going to have AFib, then this is a good thing to have. But if you already have AFib, it's then not it's nearly compl- accurate enough garbage. to give the doctor what they need. You know, you're going to have a much more sophisticated EKG that you walk around with. But this was approved by the Food and Drug Administration, right? So so then why? Why did the FDA approve it if it doesn't actually work in the in the ways that people anticipated it would? I think the FDA is recognizes some of the weaknesses of this device. I mean, they say right in the approval that it's not meant for people who have AFib, for example. So they know that there's a big population of people that, you know, you could be monitoring that aren't going to be qualifying the people who are the sickest. Uh, they also you can't use it for people who are under 22 years old. It's not a pediatric device. So they're so the FDA is recognizing the limitations, but at the same time they want to encourage these software companies to really get into this space aggressively and pump out new innovations. Apple was kind of one of the you know the first big pilots to come through, uh, but then also what what really raised a lot of eyebrows was when the FDA timed their announcement of their approval for these apps the day before the big rollout of the Apple Watch 4 in, in Cupertino on September 12th. So that, that seems was, like very curious timing. Well, it, it definitely was struck a lot of people in Washington as curious. And I think that there's really the FDA is not making really any bones about it. The fact that they uh, want these companies to get involved in this space and to innovate and create new products for patients. Are there other products out there that are doing things like this? Yeah, there's a variety of products that uh, you know, that consumers can now, uh, they can take their blood pressure and send that to the doctor over their Bluetooth. You can check your heart rate just by putting your fingers on a, a pad. There's things you can strap to your body that will measure your heart rate, and you can send that to your doctor. It downloads the data, and, and off it goes on your iPhone. But the thing about the Apple Watch is that 
uh, it's such a mass market uh, product and it has much more uptake. So that's why it's going to be really uh, literally on the wrists of millions of people. But are there concerns here about privacy, the fact that this thing is tracking, you know, all of your bodily functions and sending it someplace else and that that kind of information might end up in places that you don't want it to be? Absolutely. Yeah. Privacy is a major concern with this and across the board on a lot of medical technology. On this particular device, what uh, what happens is, you know, it goes to a PDF, it's stored on your own phone, and then you can send it straight to your doctor and you can cut out any you know middleman or whatever. But eventually what this data will be, there will be these big pockets and pools of data. And uh, the state of the art now is that what happens is um, people will take the data and they will de-identify it. So they'll take your name off. They'll take your social security number off. They'll take your you know, ad- address off. But then it'll have you like, you know, sort of your demographic profile and then your health data. And then through a huge mass of that volume of data, they can actually make discoveries and find out things about people's health, you know, human health on a much broader scale. The problem is now there are companies out there that can take that de-identified data and then triangulate and figure out who you are and where you live. And there are significant privacy concerns in this space that have not been fully addressed. And I'm imagining if that ended up in the hands of like your insurance company or something, that that, that could be a reason for you to have higher insurance rates or your family members or people who are related to you. That's right. And there are some partnerships going on now between Fitbit and Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example, where people on Medicare, elderly people, uh, have their Fitbits and their data is being picked up and monitored and uh, looked at by their insurance companies that carry their Medicare plan with the idea that the Medicare plan can help them and coach them on how to be healthier, you know, to encourage them to take those steps that they need every day and to make sure that they're getting, you know, all whatever proper, uh, you know, that their heart rate is getting somewhat elevated every day so that they're staying fit and losing weight and those kinds of things, which you can see is a good thing. That's a very optimistic take on it. But you can see that there's certainly um, a dark side there that is raising a lot of concerns. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. And before we go, one more thing from Anna Rothschild, host of the Post's video series, Science Magic Show Hooray. This, from 1993's Jurassic Park, is perhaps the most iconic dinosaur roar in all of cinema. But scientists say it's totally wrong. So what we know about large animals and large dinosaurs is they would have generally had lower frequency sounds. So boom, deep sounds. Julia Clark is a paleontology professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Part of her work focuses on figuring out what sounds dinosaurs might have made. To do so, she looks to crocodiles and alligators, which are dinosaur cousins, and also birds, which are the only dinosaurs still living today. A lot of large-bodied birds and crocodiles produce their most important calls, the calls that function in attracting others or scaring someone out of your territory. Those calls are produced with the mouth closed. Here's a crocodile growl. And here's an ostrich's boom. They're very different than the Jurassic Park dinosaur's roar. A T-Rex is much bigger than either of these animals, though, so its sounds might have sounded even deeper. Of course, despite the wealth of knowledge we now have about how dinosaurs likely made noise, 
I somehow doubt we'll hear a T-Rex booming like an ostrich in the next installment of Jurassic World. But who knows? I'm, I'm simply saying that life, life uh, uh, finds a way. That's it for Post Reports. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed the theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. Special thanks to Carol Alderman, Robert Davis, and Joe Price. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.